Welcome to this self-guided audio walk presented to you by the International Literature Festival Dublin for its 2021 edition here and now. Throughout your walk, please keep an eye out for pedestrians and traffic. Don't forget to keep a safe distance from others. Ensure you do this walk at sociable hours and remember you can pause the playback at any time. Alternatively, you can enjoy this walk from the comfort of your own home. You can view the route map and read the full transcription of this walk on the event page at www.ilfdublin.com. We hope you enjoy this experience. Dublin is a very walkable city. We like that about Dublin. Where we're standing now, on the Rosie Hackett Bridge, facing the north side of the city, if you look to your left, you'll be staring down the River Liffey, all the way to Houston Station and Phoenix Park Gates, just off Parkgate Street. To your right, you'll see Dublin Docklands. You can walk from the Docklands to the gates of Phoenix Park in 49 minutes. According to Google, that's 3.9 kilometres. Even with a 5 kilometre limit, you'd have some wiggle room to keep wandering. See what I mean? Very walkable. A walkable city is a luxury, but something we might not really consider is who gets to enjoy this luxury. The city isn't an inclusive space, if we think back to the history of those who walked in the city, the luxury was designated to males, or flanners. The definition of a flanner is a man who saunters about observing the city. The flanner is a romantic, a thinker, a man who has the luxury of blending into the city space without a fear for his safety. This term, coined by the poet Baudelaire in the early 20th century, endowed men with this title. For the perfect flaneur or the passionate spectator, it is an immense joy to set up house in the heart of the multitude, amid the ebb and flow of movement. A recent Irish Times article interviewing women living in Ireland quoted women saying, I spent decades believing it is my right to be anywhere I like at any time, in any place. But I've now resigned myself to the fact that women and girls will never fully be safe. Let's come back to where we're standing for a moment. Take a look to the right. Down the river again on the north side of the Liffey, we have Bachelor's Walk. How apt. Granted, we're standing on a bridge called Rosie, but we didn't get there without a debate. This guided tour is a tribute to women who lived in the city. We will take the flaneur and subvert the word into the feminine flanners to demonstrate how women, through necessity, have walked and stood as a demonstration of retaliation, as a desire for greater equality and as a political act. This bridge commemorates Rosie Hackett a woman who walked for women's rights. 
Born in 1892, Rosie became politicised at a young age while working as a messenger for Jacob's Biscuits under despicable working conditions. Rosie helped coordinate a successful strike of over 3,000 women. The success of this strike led Rosie to co-found the Irish Women's Workers' Union along with Delia Larkin. In 1913, during the Dublin lockout, Rosie and her comrades tried to provide supplies and support for their strikers and their families, setting up a soup kitchen in the city. Despite her tireless work and great humility, when the city was invited to vote on who this bridge would be named after, and Rosie's name was among four others, some questioned who she was. What had she done that made her worthy of an entire bridge? It was due to the tireless lobbying of two campaigners Angelina Cox and Jennifer Gartland, that were standing here talking about Rosie. They said, Rosie is the people's choice. Historically, women have done much more than simply observe and support the actions of men. Unfortunately, neither of these women were invited to speak at the opening ceremony. The consulting engineers employed on the project were men. The architects, a practice composed of three men. The building contract was carried out by a construction company that is chaired by... I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. It was thanks to Rosie Hackett that so many women felt empowered to have their voices heard. Rosie was also involved in the printing of the original 1916 proclamation. When she handed it to James Connolly, it was wet off the press. She later recounted how the men with Connolly on that occasion had complained that a woman had been let into the room, saying, I was only let in with the messages. Now we'll make our way to Strand Street, just off Liffey Street. If you walk along Rosie Hackett, you'll be on Usher's Quay. Make your way towards O'Connell Bridge, towards Liffey Street. When you stroll past O'Connell Street, you'll see on the bank in the middle of the street some tall and impressive statues of men. Great leaders, warriors for civil and workers' rights. There was a woman here for a while, a sculpture of a female bathing, People called her the floozy in the jacuzzi. She must have been too salacious as she was moved out of the city centre to a little garden patch where she's much less visible. Once you arrive at Strand Street, you'll be faced with a row of buildings, office blocks mostly, pretty unassuming and nothing to look at. But there's a story behind one of these doors that I think you might be interested to hear.
Hi everybody, my name is Sarah Phillips. You may wonder why we're standing outside a new building here on Great Strand Street on the north side of Dublin city centre. Well, very few people know that between 1992 and 2001 there was a secret transgender club stretching from where we stand all the way to the Keys. At this spot lay the entrance to the Amanda Barry's Trans Club, a black, inconspicuous door leading down a long, narrow hallway to a labyrinth of dark, imaginably decorative rooms, including a bar, a small lounge, which they call the Tiger Room, and various dressing rooms. This seemed like something from the Victorian age. And yet it lay hidden to only those who attended it for over nine years. It wasn't the only club in Dublin in the 90s. The Gemini Club opened in 1996 in a small basement on North Frederick Street and continued hidden for over 21 years. But it is from this door that I first stepped out into the public gaze in early 1992. These streets for me were a contradiction, filled with a sense of danger, vulnerability, fear, but overwhelmingly a sense of freedom. For these streets allowed me to be me. I could not have expressed my identity within my family home, my town or even in my workplace. But here I could blend in and be anonymous. Behind these doors I could socialise with my friends, I could go out for a meal or a drink and live a part-time life that was denied to me. For being transgender in 1990s, Dublin wasn't always safe. The media portrayed many of us as the gender assigned at our birth or even disordered and in my case, male. In fact, my first appearance in the newspapers went something like the atmosphere was a heady mix of subdued lighting, French perfume and cigarette smoke. Sarah adjusts her short black silver lame jacket and steps from one high-heeled foot to another. Her car has been broken into near the city centre club where she is socialising with her friends, and she's clearly upset. It's only when Sarah turns and speaks that you would really know. The voice is unmistakably that of a man. Assassinated in eight short words. Back then the streets always brought danger. Like the time a guy suggested he'd stab me if he had a knife as he passed myself and my friend on O'Connell Street. Leaving Eamon Dorns one evening, another approached me to ask if you have that thing removed from between your legs, I'd be interested in you. I had to ask the bouncer who I knew really well to walk me to my car. And yet Dublin was my playground. It showed me a life that I could hope for, a hope to be me. But I wasn't the only trans person to traverse these streets. There were many. In the late 1970s, a small group of trans people used to meet in Parliament Inn on Parliament Street. Among them, a hero of the trans community over the past 40 years, a woman by the name of Claire Farrell. In 1978, Claire founded the first ever trans group in Ireland, called the Friends of Aeon. Their advert read, provocatively, come dressed if you like. In 1980, she appeared on the RTE television programme Summer House, interviewed by Anya O'Connor and followed by cameras around a shopping centre. Such visibility was unheard of back then. Claire has told me that what it was like to remain unseen, the difficulty in being safe and unrecognised, This was the Ireland, after all, 15 years before decriminalisation of homosexuality. 
Life was not easy for a trans woman in Dublin in the 70s, 80s or 90s. Claire has since become one of my best friends. And again, Claire and her friends were not the first trans people either. There have been many before us. When young Eliza graced the boards of the Theatre Royal in Crow Street in the early 1800s, the public admired her acting and singing ability. In fact, by 1810, she was the highest paid actor in Dublin, constantly in demand, performing in Smock Alley, the Rotunda and Fish Amble Street as well as Crow Street. She socialised with the great and good, her story littered with Grattan, Mountjoy, Brian, Moore and O'Connell, all men you'll notice, written about in the newspapers of the day, lauded in poems and criticised in pamphlets. But she was brazen and proud. Supported by her mother, she lived in the greatest of grandeur on Mount Street. She epitomised the celebrity of her day. But Eliza had a secret, constantly in gossip columns as to who she was connected with romantically. She was never to marry. At one point she was supported and financed by the richest man in Ireland and it said supposedly his mistress. He was a friend of O'Connell and that was Major Bryan. In 1833 in London, Eliza died in poverty. Upon her death, it was discovered to a horrific public that Eliza was not what she had seemed and had been assigned male at birth. For more of that story, you'll have to read the book when it's published because no one has ever told her full story. Dublin has given us a home over the past few centuries. It allowed me to come out, be myself, make friends, meet others like me, show the world for who I am. For Claire, she would say the same. For Eliza, it was the scene of her greatest triumph, where she got to live her life and be respected for who she was. But all is not as good as it could be. From 1992, the situation certainly improved for trans people, with support groups, social outlets, a new national organisation, more visibility and gender recognition. But the streets can be dangerous again. Dublin is not as safe as it should be for women, no matter what your history. When you're ready, turn back onto Liffey Street, Proceed to Mary Street and on to Moore Street. Take some time here while listening to Gemma Howe and her granny Ellen.
Hello everyone. My name is Gemma Howe. I am a national tour guide and currently work in Dublin City Council's Culture Company in 14 Henrietta Street Tenement Museum. I am here to talk to you about the sights, sounds and memories of Moore Street. Moore Street is a bustling cultural hub and played an important part in Dublin's urban heritage. The street was laid out in 1728 and was named after its principal landowner, Henry Moore, the first Earl of Drogheda. Moore Street's early beginnings began as a modest residential area. However, it became a burning battlefield as one of the final chapters of the 1916 Rising took place here. Number 15 Moore Street was the volunteers' last headquarters. Our next speaker, Donna, will have more to share with you about this. It wasn't until towards the end of the 19th century that the street and its surrounding laneways became known for its butchers, fishmongers and grocers. And so, Moore Street became a well-known open-air market for the people of Dublin. The traders in Moore Street have long held a prime place in Dublin's cultural heart. My grandmother, Ellen Redmond, Nee Campion, her late sisters, my great-grandmother, worked in Moore Street most of their lives. I never had the privilege of meeting my great-grandmother, Kitty Hansard, as she passed the year I was born, in 1988. Well, um, we were born, we were in Gardner Street, you know, and I had a granny as well, and she lived in the lane here. And when we come from school, my mother would be in the market, we'd come from school, we would go up to her for our dinner or whatever, and then we would go down, I would go down to Moore Street, maybe we and the baby belonged to me, mommy, you know. But anyway, my mother um, used to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, not Saturday. No, oh, she did. She saw the York cabbage. She was known of us selling the York cabbage on a Saturday. As a young child, my mother often brought me into town to visit my grandmother and Aunt Kitty Campion. Moore Street was a fascinating place for a child, and I remember it very fondly. Like most of the traders, my family saw fruit and veg, and on other days, fish. Some traders had a particular item that only they sold. My grandmother sold cooking apples and at Christmas sold the holly wreaths, mistletoe and at one point even Christmas trees. A shilling for all the cookers. Put them in your bag. A shilling for all the cookers. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I always saw the cooking apples. Maybe because we always cooked them, you know. But the lady facing me, she was a very good dealer. But she always sold the big melons. She was known for selling them, always. I wouldn't sell melons, you know. But when I started to sell the bananas, my mummy said I was eating all the profit. As I grew up in the 90s, my mother sent me to help out with the stall during the summer months. I really enjoyed helping my granny out. We have a special relationship, and although I shouldn't say this, I am her favourite. My most vivid memories of Moore Street started in the suburbs of Finglas West. The development of the suburbs during the 40s, 50s and 60s seen the exodus of many families from the city centre to suburbs like Cabra, Donny Kearney, Inglis and Ballyferma, also known as Ballyfarrow. My grandmother, grandfather 
and their children moved from a tenement house in Gardner Street to a two-up-two-down house in Finglas. Like most who lived in the city, my great-grandmother did not want to move. She was lucky and one of her sons purchased a cottage on Bessborough Avenue near the North Strand. And so it's in the early mornings in Finglas that me and my grandmother rose to make the journey to town. You will get the half-six bus now from Finglas in the morning to the market. My mummy retired at 70, but she didn't go anywhere. She just went home. And Kitty and I took over the stall. Our first stop when we arrived in town was to go to the back stores, where at the time, all of the licensed traders of Morstree kept their stalls, equipment and supplies. I remember it as a dark, barely lit laneway with locked doors on both sides, with a drain running down the middle. I remember jumping to avoid the large puddles as we made our way to my granny's store. I helped her pull out everything and carry it to her spot on the street. At this early stage in the morning, all of the women of Morstree were busy setting up their stalls, pausing briefly to say hello and then carry on, but it was quiet, the calm before the storm, you could say. I was always amazed at how incredibly quick the stalls were set up and how beautiful they looked. An amazing arrangement of colours. My granny then took me around to the busy red brick fruit market on Mary's Lane. This is where my granny would order most of her stock for the day in order to transport some extra bits my granny would use an old pram. It was my responsibility to push the pram which gave my younger self a great sense of joy. The market was bustling, filled to the brim with boxes of fruit and vegetables, men laughing, shouting and everyone said hello as we walked through. The sound of the horse and cart on the cobbles of Moorer signified the arrival of the produce from the market. We had to buy the cabbage by auction, you know, off the men. Um, it came up on the horse car and the men dropped it and the horses dropped it in the street. But then, when they changed everything, Kitty got friendly with this other chap that grew the cabbage, and she had, he came to her every Saturday with the cabbage. As the day went on, people started to buy their goods from the traders. The noise and the general excitement increased on Street. The hustle, bustle and haggling began. The traders began their calls. Broccoli, cauliflower, head of salad, cabbage, carrots and turnips. During the day, I tore strips of cardboard and made price signs with my granny's instruction. It was also my job to go across the street and get one of the girls in the cafe to fill up the flask with hot water for tea. I remember the excitement getting to use the weighing scales and play with the individual weights when someone wanted to buy something. I have to admit that it was also a joy when my granny would give me a few bob to get myself an ice cream from the ILAC Centre. And then like me, a lot of the girls that was working and then got married came down like me to help their mother, you know, and some of them got dolls. I think all the women's families done all that helping for them. Now, there was a lot of men in Mary Street, the, 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 the women's husbands did help them. 
you know, and their sons as well. They did help them, you know. As a young girl, I really liked the old facade of the ILAC. It had bright coloured triangles that added to the aesthetic of the street. In the last couple of hours of the day, there was a final frantic push to sell what you had left or had to get rid of. So the calling, or some people call it a hawk, became more frequent and louder. The stall was packed up and we headed home. And my other sister Kitty would be packing in, you call packing in, packing up, and I wouldn't like to have the apples left, but it wasn't only the apples. I would stand on the road in nursery and sell them to the people passing by. But if I had tomatoes, I would go on the inside where the Ilock Centre is and sell them there. I always had the apples on the scoop of the scales on the road and the women like in Finglas where I lived, a 50 year in Finglas, be coming home from work and I, they would buy the apples off me. You know, I say like a shilling for all the apples, you know. Today, Moore Street is a diverse multicultural shopping district where you can buy halal, Asian, Polish and Brazilian foods. It is the best place in the city for hair extensions. We can also proudly say that Moore Street starred in Ireland's first Bollywood short movie made in 2010 called Moore Street Masala. The old red brick buildings of the street stand in a dilapidated state and I look forward to the redevelopment of the street which will preserve the history, the stories of those who worked on Moore Street and called it home. Oh yeah, 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 it was great crack, yeah, great crack, great crack. Thanks for listening. When you're ready, you can walk to the GPO where you'll hear from Donna Cooney.
Hi, I'm Donna Cooney, a Green Party councillor, artist and relative of Elizabeth O'Farrell, better known as Nurse O'Farrell. We are standing outside the GPO, which was the headquarters for the 1916 Easter Rising. Elizabeth O'Farrell played a significant role in the Rising and surrenders that Easter week. She was a member of Common Amon since its foundation in 1914 in Wynn's Hotel, which is just across the way from here. She was 32 years of age that Easter week and trusted with much responsibility, having travelled to Galway, to Spiddle and Athenry to deliver a dispatch from James Connolly to Lee Mellows to say the rising was on. It had been reported in the paper that it was off. Julia Grennan, her lifetime partner, was sent with other dispatches. She arrived back in Dublin and with some difficulty made her way walking here to the GPO armed with nothing but an umbrella, as she joked about afterwards. But it didn't prevent her taking a very active role. Julia arrived back later that day. They, along with the other women, had various difficult duties that week. She left with the dispatches travelling back and forth from the GPO through heavy gunfire and really showed her bravery. By the Thursday, with the building in flames, the women were ordered to evacuate. Most of them left and made their way to Jervis Street Hospital via Prince's Lane with the wounded and at one point they thought they wouldn't make it. Elizabeth, Julia and Winifred Carney, Connolly's PA, were the only women left to remain in the GPO. The next day everyone had to evacuate as the building was in ruins and likely to blow up with so much gunpowder about. They left in three groups. Elizabeth was in the last group and they made their way from the side of the GPO onto Henry Street, across to Henry Place and into 10 Moore Street. Elizabeth fell outside number 10 and had to be helped up by a Sean McGarry from Ballybock. When she got into the parlour, she tended to the 17 wounded, including James Connolly in a makeshift field hospital. Others burrowed through the terrace that night and in the morning they moved into number 16 Moore Street. A council of war was held and Elizabeth was there as witness and it was decided to surrender to save further civilian lives. Elizabeth was asked if she would go and speak with the British Army to seek conditions for a surrender. She agreed. A white flag, a pillowcase, was waved from the upper window and she stepped out at number 15 with a white flag and a nurse's insignia on her arm and apron. She looked behind her. She was so aware of this historical moment and her place in it. Walking steadily down Moore Street to a barricade at the junction of Parnell Street. She was taken to speak to General Lowe, who would only accept unconditional surrender. She walked back with a verbal message and then had to go back with a written response from Podrick Pierce. The General was not happy with that, and no terms agreed. She was requested to return with Podrick Pierce. Shortly after that, the iconic photograph was taken of Pierce, General Lowe, his son, and Elizabeth. She took a moment's decision to step out of the photo to, as poet Theodorgan described, make her own history. Many over the years since saw that famous photograph as a symbol of how women have been airbrushed out of history. And Elizabeth felt that way also, that really women had not gained the equality they expected in the new state of Ireland. And she later regretted not being seen fully in the photograph. So she could have acted as a role model for other women. Her activism did inspire me in my life and I hope you liked listening to her story today. We're almost at the end of our walk. See you at the final stop, the James Joyce Centre. 
where you'll hear from Joyce Garvey and the life of the woman who danced in shadows, Lucia Joyce.
Hello everyone, my name is Joyce Garvey. I'm a writer, artist and filmmaker and I'm here to tell you a little about the daughter of James Joyce, Lucia Joyce. My own interest in Lucia Joyce came when I was writing a series of books about women who lived under the shadow of someone famous and how they managed to retain their own identities. And I thought of Lucia Joyce. What was it like for her to be the daughter of the genius, James Joyce? When I began researching my book, I knew very little about Lucia Joyce, except that she was locked away most of her life in mental asylums. But Lucia was a very talented dancer and artist. The only daughter of James Joyce and Nora Barnacle, she was born in Trieste in Italy in 1907, where her father had a job teaching English in the Berlitz School in the centre of Trieste. The Joyces had exiled themselves from Ireland, as Joyce put it, because of Ireland's relentless oppression of those who try to think beyond Ireland's parochial norms. James Joyce was very vocal with this view and had a continuing problem with Ireland and the Catholic Church and insisted that he had to leave Ireland in order to find himself. So the Joyces moved from country to country from city to city. They lived in Italy, Switzerland, back to Ireland, then to France, then back to Switzerland again, which was difficult for the children, Lucia and Giorgio, who was two years older than she and who was the favourite of his mother, Nora Barnacle. James Joyce, though, was devoted to Lucia, who all her life suffered from mental problems. Her biographer, Karl Loeb Sloss, suggests that Lucia too might have been touched by genius, submerged in the same waters as her father, but where he swam, she drowned. In 1920, the Joyce family moved to Paris. It was there in 1922 that Lucia Joyce began taking dance lessons. Dancing was to become her obsession. She studied under Raymond Duncan, the brother of the famous Isadora Duncan, and Lucia became a professional dancer. She danced several times in public performances in Paris, where famously one critic was heard to remark, the famous James Joyce may yet be known as his daughter's father. It was during this time, too, that she began to illustrate some of her father's work. She was a very talented artist. There is a marvellous book of Lucia's illustrations in the National Library here in Dublin. If you haven't seen this, it is really worth a visit. It is just wonderful, full of detail, colour 
energy and personality. So Lucia was a talented artist as well as a wonderful professional dancer. She also had a much publicised, if brief, affair with Samuel Beckett in 1931. Her biographer claims that she was besotted by Beckett, but he was more interested in the genius of her father than he was of her. It was around that time too, and after her affair with Beckett ended, that her mental problems worsened, and her King Lear moments, as her father called them, became worse. The following years were marked by a growing number of episodes of violent and self-destructive behaviour. She would often disappear for days and be found sleeping rough on the streets of Dublin. Lucia also had a fascination with fire. She liked to set things alight, and once she set fire to her aunt's house in Bray and nearly burned it to the ground. Her father was intent on getting her cured and spent most of his money on specialists, including the famous Carl Jung in Switzerland. Nora Barnico resented this and claimed James was ruining his own health as well as throwing away all their money on doctors for Lucia. There was, of course, a jealousy between Nora and Lucia, which came to a head when at her father's 50th birthday party in Paris in 1932, Lucia picked up a wooden chair and crashed it down on her mother's head. It was then she was locked away in an asylum in Paris. She was signed and delivered by a chair. Her father's health deteriorated then, also around that time, and when James Joyce eventually died, Lucia was transferred to Northampton Asylum in England, aged 44, and she was virtually abandoned there by her family. Her mother never went to see her, and she was in that asylum for 31 years until she died aged 75 in 1982. Lucia Joyce, dancer, artist, mad daughter of the genius. Thank you for listening. Visit www.ilfdublin.com for more events and podcasts. This programme was presented to you by the International Literature Festival Dublin, a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council.